thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to continue our study of the book of Ezekiel. Last time we took a first brush at the first couple of chapters in this book, and we saw that um, we saw that there are a number of similarities between the book of Ezekiel and the and the book of Revelation. Uh, for those of you who do not have copies of these, uh, we made it to chapter five last week. Let's see if we can. Um, uh, progress further today. So turn to um, the book of Ezekiel, starting with uh, chapter 9. In chapter 9, we see a very important event taking place. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Draw near you executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And lo, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, every man with his weapon for slaughter in his hand, and with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his side. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of God, of the God of Israel, had gone up from the cherubim on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his side, and the Lord said to him, Go through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark upon the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations in our, that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and smite your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Slay old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go forth. So they went forth and smote in the city. And while they were smiting, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou destroy all that remains of Israel in the outpouring of thy wrath upon Jerusalem? And he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity, but I will require their deeds upon their heads. And lo, the man clothed in linen, with the, with the writing case at his side, brought back word, saying, I have done as thou didst command me. So, we see six angels, again, the importance of the numbers here, six, come through, and amongst them is this man clothed with linen. What is a linen symbol of? No, not death. Priesthood. Linen is a symbol of priesthood. So, effectively, the one who's standing among them is a priest. And he goes through and anoints on their foreheads those who sigh and groan for the iniquities that are committed. And as I told you last time, the sign is really literally the little tau, which is a T, or a sign of the cross. That's what he signs these people with. And after him come those six angels who walk through the city and they smite, they, they, they smite every person who was not, who did not have that mark on their forehead. Uh, at, this, at this juncture, you may wonder, well, what about children? Kill. Uh, what about children? 
And that's where what I told you about family relationship play an important role because even though it is not explicitly stated, it is implicitly understood that if someone is righteous and sighing for the house of Israel, then he and his household will be saved. Because what he, the blessing he brings that is not a blessing upon himself only, but upon his family. Right? But if among his household there is a person of age who is not doing such things, committing wickedness, and they're not signed, then this person will be slain. And this is not new. We've seen this before. Where? Hmm? Passover. In, e in Egypt. Passover. Same thing. The difference between Passover, though, and this you see the progression is that in the case of Passover it was purely exter ex external. What you had to do in Passover was to take a lamb, two years old, without blemish, kill the lamb, take some of its blood, put it on the lentils of your doors, and whomever is in that, and the firstborn who are in this house will not be slain. Regardless of the holiness of that firstborn. Remember, firstborn doesn't mean three years old. It's 60 years old as the firstborn. Okay? So regardless of his interior state, he would be spared if that was done. Now there is a progression. This is interior. It is interior. And it is, it is upon those who sigh and who are are unhappy with the current state. Now notice he said those who sigh, not those who grumble, not those who critique, not those who complain loudly, those who sigh. Alright? So it's an interior state of recognizing the evil and knowing that you can't do much about it, yet you cite to God that He will do something about it. He will bring about a change. And a change is forthcoming. It, it, it's not only precursor, it, they are the Beatitudes, because these people, typically, will be the ones who will be looked out upon by those who are actually committing all these iniquities, right? But they're sighing, therefore they're not raising their voice and complaining and taking the sword and killing people and doing all that sort of stuff, right? Now let's, let's ask another question. Once this man, dressed in linen, goes to the city and marks everyone, and the six angels proceed to kill these people, Ezekiel is seen, right? This is what he's seeing in his vision. So let's say we had, a, we had two men standing in front of us by the, by the, um, in the court of Solomon, let's say, in the temple. And the man dressed in linen will go to one of them, and he actually signs this guy, but not the other. And Ezekiel sees <clears throat> the angel come right after him, after that man, and he kills one man and the other. This is what he's seeing. In physical reality, what's going on? In reality of, the, of those people, so in a temple, let's say you have Ezekiel standing in those two guys. Then the man dressed in the little comes and goes, and the angel comes and goes. In the physical reality, what happened? The physical reality, not to, to the physical reality, as in uh, the the three bodies standing there. You mean the two bodies? There. Three, Ezekiel and the two men. Yeah, but let's put Ezekiel aside, right? Set the see Ezekiel aside. What happened after the two, the man dressed in linen and the angel came and gone? How many men are there left standing? Three. Three. That's the important element. It happens in the eyes of Ezekiel. Physically, nothing happened. You understand? Okay. Don't take this vision as applying physically, because it didn't. It is applying in the eyes of Ezekiel. He's seeing the spiritual truth. Okay? God has already ordained the death of these people. He already has given their bodies to death. But physically, nothing has happened yet. You understand? Anyone still confused by this? Well, interesting, you brought it as seeing the future. 
Well, no, it's not God withdrawing His graces. It's God ordaining the death. You understand? So what happens at that moment is that even though in the vision of Ezekiel he's seeing this happening, in the reality of everyday life, nothing has happened. When will it happen? When will it actually take place? When Jerusalem will be taken. Alright? When the Babylonian forces will actually invade and destroy Jerusalem. That's when it will actually happen. Why is that important? Because this is one of the few passages where you actually see how the spiritual reality precedes and ordains the physical reality. The physical reality is a manifestation of the spiritual reality. It effectively shows us what happens spiritually. No, that, that's, uh, yes, one will be taken, one will be left was not in Revelation, this is in Matthew. In the small, in, in the mini apocalypse. Um, so that, that is key. That is key. And the reason why it is key is because m these days, especially these days, people live in anxiety. An anxious Christian is an ox oxymoron, if you've ever noticed. An anxious Christian is an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? When you say a bright day night, right? Or a giant midget, okay? Or um, jumbo shrimp, right? Something that just doesn't, you take two extremes, put them together when it doesn't work, right? Well, an anxious Christian is an oxymoron. You can't be anxious and declare yourself Christian. You understand that? But the reason why we, we live in the world of anxiety, it's one of those greatest paradoxes of our time, but really the, the text of Leviticus and Deuteronomy applies to us. We live in a country that has great material riches. We live in a time of unprecedented material ease. We live in a time with unprecedented medical advances. We live in a time with unprecedented scientific advances. We live in a time where our knowledge has, is, is unlike anything that we've seen before. Um, our span of life has increased by 30, 40 years, easy, compared to two generations ago. Just two generations ago. And yet, our anxiety is as high, if not higher, than what it was before. Okay? Right? Why? Because because the foundation of it all, the more we understand of the universe and how it functions, the more we see how precarious life is. Okay? When we learn about all the viruses there are and uh, all the stuff that can happen and uh, global warming and this other thing and that and the other, we're taking upon ourselves our own destiny. Right? So we're sort of decided we're going to run the universe. We're now the ones running the place which is much bigger than us, and of course we're going to feel anxious. But that's not the Christian outlook. We're not running the place. We're just passing by. That's all. We're just passing by. We're pilgrims. We're passing by. Someone else is running the place, and he knows how to run it. So what are you anxious about? Okay? You see it right here. He marked all those who will be saved. And then he gave the city for destruction. We will see the same phenomena occurring in the book of Revelation for the 144,000. And as you know, the, the famous, you've all heard of the 144,000, haven't you? Right? That St. John saw the number of the elect numbered to 144,000. Right? Right? And in the book of Revelation, you see that, and the Jehovah Witnesses believe that the 144,000 are part of the Jehovah Witnesses. And that's how many places you have in heaven, and the rest will live on earth. Right? First class, second class citizen type thing. Why? Because it's completely taken out of context. The 144 is what? 12 times 12. Right? Times 1,000. Okay? And so 1,000 means many. And then 12 times 12, 144, those two numbers represent Israel. Specifically Israel. The 12 tribes. Right? So it is, it is something that talks to 
Israel, and that brings us back right here to that text. When the, the angel of death is going to, when the 144,000 are going to be marked in the book of Revelation, it isn't 144,000 from all nations. It is only 144,000 from Israel, and specifically, of course, Jerusalem. Alright? That's why this is very important for our understanding of that text, otherwise we can get it to say whatever we want. Now, 10. Then I looked and behold on the firmament that was over the heads of the cherubim. Remember that that firmament is what St. John will see at the sea, not a firmament, because he's seeing from above. Ezekiel sees it from below. Okay? Uh, there appeared above them something like a sapphire in form, resembling a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. Now, of course, scattering coals over the city. If you throw coals in a city, what do you get? Fire. Right? So, the first, the first passage of those six angels in the city is people dying from the sword. Then the second one is people dying by fire. But the interesting thing is the origin of that fire. Where is it coming from? Yeah, but from where? He's taking the coals that are between the wheels under the throne. You understand? Between the cherubim, between the wheels under the cherubim. Right, but that's what I'm saying. Under the chariot, there is those four wheels and in them there's the coal. Okay? Burning coal. Where do you usually put burning coal? Yes? Where else? Bingo. For incense. So this burning coal comes from where? The temple. The heavenly temple. During what? During a heavenly liturgy. That's where the burning coal comes from. The throne appears Interest, the important thing is that the throne appears after he went through the city and smote all these people, right? So effectively, cleansing the city, then the heavenly throne appears. Alright? Notice the sequence. Those who are wicked do not get to see the glory of God. Only the righteous will. That's a theme repeated over and over in scripture. Only the righteous will. And the throne of God appears, and from that throne, coals are taken, and they are thrown on the city. Meaning, the, essentially what you see here is the heavenly liturgy, which we know will be based on the new covenant. And it is the heavenly liturgy, which is based on the new covenant, the mass, which puts an end to the old covenant. Alright? That's what's happening right here in this text. It is very liturgical in nature. Right? We, we say, the, the Council of Vatican II says that the Mass is the summit and source of the spiritual life of the Church. No wonder it is the summit and the source. Because it is from Mass that all the power and mercy of God flows on the world. It's through the liturgy that the, that, the, that the mercy and the judgment of God flows onto the world. Let's now go back to um, chapter 8. Notice the beginning of chapter 8 in Ezekiel. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day. Right? Six, six, five. No coincidence. Right? 665, which is, when we start reading this, we see that this is when everything gets triggered. Right before the, if you will, the completion of iniquity, which is 666, God's judgment gets, is triggered. So that's why the number 666 isn't just a number that appears in the book of Revelation out of nowhere. Right, 666 is the fullness of iniquity. So here, right before it, you can see the mind, mindset. In the sixth month, the sixth day, the, 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 the sixth year, the sixth month, the fifth day. If it wasn't important, it would not have been indicated. Alright? And you notice, no, 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 no. It's, it's a precursor to the final day of iniquity. So they're really getting close to bringing about God's judgment upon them. 
Then I beheld a low form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his loins, it was fire. And above his loins, it was like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming bronze. He put forth the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And so this appearance is very, very similar in its structure to the appearance of our Lord in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. And it gives us an indication as to when the Lord appeared in the book of Revelation. The Lord appeared in the book of Revelation in the middle of iniquity. Bringing about the judgment that is to come. Alright? So we know from the correspondence of the two passages that the context, and we will go over the historical context around the time of the early Christianity for everyone to understand what they were dealing with. Because 99.99% of Catholics have absolutely no clue what that context was like. And 99.99% of all Christians think that the context of early Christianity has no bearing and no importance on the New Testament. That in order to understand the New Testament, we don't need to understand that context. Which is a, a great mistake, just as ignoring the Old Testament is a great mistake. And you will see why when we get into, into this uh, later. Yes. Yes, Jesus appeared to John. I meant the, when Jesus appeared in that form to John, not when he came. Well, not when he was uh, 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 born. I mean when he appeared to, to St. John on the Isle of Patmos. The context, we know that John was exiled to that island during a persecution. So it was right within the moment of great iniquity being committed and preparing for what is going to happen in Jerusalem a little bit later. Yes, I, I agree that the majority of Catholics don't read scripture. It is not looked at in terms of, it is not looked at in terms of the four senses of scripture. Okay. That the first sense is the literal sense, which the historical context is very important to help us understand what the literal sense is. And without it, you can't really understand why Paul wrote those letters and why Peter was writing his letters and what was the whole point behind those letters. So they basically always switch and look mostly at the moral sense and also at the eschatological sense, the future. They're completely future-oriented right. rather than being oriented towards the past. Okay. And for good reasons, because anyone who actually studies history becomes Catholic. Not only that, I'm saying that what was written in the New Testament had an immediate reason. Okay. has an immediate reason which was dependent on the historical context in which the Christians were living. Particularly the letters of St. Paul, particularly Acts, the letters of St. Peter, the letters of St. Jude, St. James, St. John. All those letters were letters that were written to people living in a very specific context. Yeah, but never mind the Old Testament right now. Okay. I'm, I'm saying forget the Old Testament for a second. All I'm trying to, to say that unless you really understand the historical context in which those letters were written, you miss the literal sense. And if you miss the literal sense, you missed the whole point of the letter. Alright? So if you only do is focus on what is this telling me right now without truly understanding its initial meaning, you can make it say whatever you want. Oh, most, most importantly the book of Revelation. Well, it's addressed to the seven churches. There are seven letters in the book of Revelation addressed to seven churches, but as we will see, first of all, seven is the covenant. Therefore, all the people of the covenant. Secondarily, all those churches, those cities, were actually on a Roman postal road starting from the first, going to the last. So it is an indication that this letter was to be circulated widely. And thirdly, they're all in the same diocese of which St. John was the bishop. Alright, so um, my point to you right now is that that historical context is important. We see here our Lord, a theophany of our Lord appearing right before 666. Which tells you that God will wait till the very, very, very last moment before enacting judgment. But He will. He brings about judgment, but He waits. He's patient. Okay? Alright. Let's go to chapter 11. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the door of the gateway there were twenty-five men... 
And I saw among them Jazania, the son of Azur, and Pelathia, the son of Benania, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in the city, who say the time is not near to, to build houses. The city is uh, the cauldron and we are the flesh. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say thus, say, thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city, and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the flesh, and this city is the cauldron. But you shall be brought forth out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, says the Lord God. And I will bring you forth out of the midst of it, and give you into the hands of foreigners, and execute judgment upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the flesh in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my ordinances, but have acted according to the ordinances of the nations that are round about you. And it came to pass, while I was prophesying, that Pelathia, the son of Benaniah, died. And I fell down upon my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Our Lord God, will thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? So these people, who are princes of the people, or supposed therefore to take care of them, are basically saying, this city, right, going back to their expression, right, this, is the, this city is the cauldron we are, the flesh, it's, a, it's an expression to basically indicate that we're comfortable where we are. We don't have to go anywhere. This is our city. And the Lord is essentially telling them, that's what you think, but that's not going to happen this way. I'm going to throw you out. I'm going to bring judgment upon you, and you will be judged. And right as he was talking, we see one of the son of the princes, again, a son, who, is, who, who falls down and dies. Right, which, which is a prefiguration to the end of the lineage. Right? It's a prefiguration to the end of the lineage. Interestingly, the way Ezekiel reacts, Ezekiel is not reacting with joy and glee. Notice, he's not saying, Well done, Lord, more, more. Bring thunder and lightning. Get rid of them. Clean the house. Destroy all of them. They're so wicked. Just, just destroy them all. Every time that he sees that God's judgment, he weeps. He weeps. Although he recognizes its necessity, he recognizes the justice of God, yet he weeps. And that's the spirit of charity that we must be in. We can't be wishing that, let's say, God cleanses the church of all these wicked people today and then let them be gone so we who are pure can feel comfortable. Can't do that. That is not the Spirit of God. This is not the Spirit of Christ. It will never be the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ is to sigh and to weep and to mourn and to diligently implore God that He brings about a renewal of the heart. He brings about conversion. He brings about a change in the minds of people. Alright? Because we know that when His judgment comes, His judgment will be glorious. Because through it, God will manifest His, His glory, yet at the same time, we know it will be terrible. It will be awful. Full of awe, but awful. Right? And when we start thinking this way, we start taking, when we start taking God's judgment really seriously, really seriously, we are prompted to charity. We are prompted to charity. Because we know what it can do. We know what it will do. The question is, what are we doing? So, the other important element I want to point out to you is that Ezekiel is completely focused on Jerusalem. And that's a very important pattern in the history of salvation, and especially in the way the covenant works. You will notice that every time a power, worldly power, becomes an obstacle to the propagation of the covenant becomes an obstacle to the people of God. Anytime a power is an obstacle, that power will be removed. It's not a question of if, it will. It's only a question of when, but it will. 
So what you need to do is, is, is substitute Jerusalem to any power that stands as an obstacle before the covenant of God. And you see it historically. You see it historically. So for instance, Egypt was the first obstacle. Disallowing the people of God from going and worshipping the Lord. What did God do? He removed the power of Egypt. Sodom, before, um, before Egypt, was an obstacle. Gomorrah was an obstacle. They were removed. Egypt. Then, um, um, Jericho. Every city, every country, every power that stands against the covenant eventually is removed. Because you cannot break the covenant. The covenant is ratified through a divine power. It cannot be broken. Hence, anyone who tries to break the covenant is broken by it. Right. And I, typically you see that it takes anywhere between 200 to 500 years for that to take place. All right. So the, 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 it's not our time. That's the important thing. You need to understand it. God doesn't work by our clock. Right. If you look at the Roman Empire, if you look at the Babylonian Empire, if you look at the, at the Chaldean before them, if you look at the Greek, the Egyptians... If you look at every empire that came about that tried to destroy the power of God, eventually it is shut down. It is shut down. Now, there is a direct correlation between that event and the holiness of the people of God. You see? There's a direct correlation between the two. The, the holier the people of God are, the quicker that event takes place. But if the people of God are now themselves an obstacle, then what God does first is that He goes to those wicked people out there and uses them to purify His people. He allows them to attack His people. He allows them to persecute His church. Because the people within the church have become wicked. And so first He purifies His church. And once, when the church is purified, He turns around and goes after the world. Yes, that's when you start having a really covenantal view of the of history of politics and and of your of the current event. No longer do you look at them as just a bunch of disconnected human events. They're all part of this covenantal struggle at the heart of which is the mass. This is what it means to be religious. You have a religious view on the world. Right? And that's what Scripture teaches us. These are the patterns recorded for our sake. Do you think that anyone during Ezekiel's time really benefited from this text? Very few did. Most of them laughed at him. As St. Paul says, this has been written for our instruction. That's its purpose. God is showing us the pattern of behavior that he has towards his people and the world. You understand? That's its purpose. This is, what it's, this is why those texts were recorded. This is why the book of Revelation is important to us. Not so much about, well, you know, is the end is coming or not, but mostly about how is God interacting with people. What will God do? Um, let's turn to chapter 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel string was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor swathed with hands, with bands. No, I pitied you to any of these things, to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you weltering in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live, and you and grow up like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full maidenhood. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yea, I plighted my trust to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Notice the, the marital language 
the marital language used here between the Lord and Jerusalem. This is the covenant. The closest thing we have to represent the covenant is marital relationship. What is one important element of marital relationship? Is marital relationship a man and a woman sitting across the table looking at each other with their eyes blinking? Is that it? What is, the, what is the one element that if it is not present, the church will immediately grant you an annulment? What kind of unity? What is consummation? Bodies. Body to body. Right? The body. Right? If two people go to, to the church and say, well, yeah, we love each other, and every night we sit in front of the TV and we feed each other spoons of sugar. And that's all we do. You mean there is no marital relationship? No. Well, there's no marriage. There is no marriage. Have you ever thought about this? But why? Why is it that the church insists on that physical relationship? That without it, there is no marriage. No. If that was the case, then people who are uh, infertile are not married. Right? So think about that for a second. You can have two people who are married, who adopt 25 kids. I know of a family actually who have adopted 25 kids. Alright? Or 16 or some number like that. But as I said, they've adopted 25 kids, but every night the two of them sit in front of the TV and feed each other spoons full of sugar. Are they married? Why? They have a beautiful family. Why are they married? Okay, but why is that important? Okay, but how? True, but why? Yes. Become, notice, become one what? Does it say become one soul? One spirit? Why body? Why one body, not one soul? One spirit. In the back of our minds, because of Puritanism, most people elevate the soul and the spirit above the body. Most people are uncomfortable talking about the body, but they're very comfortable talking about the soul and the spirit. That's not Christian attitude. It isn't. It's a Puritan attitude. You can see how the Lord speaks in Scripture. This is Scripture speaking. The text I read you is in Scripture. It's holy inspired. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He uses bodily language. He doesn't say, when I passed by you, you were like a beautiful gleam of light floating in the clouds. And I saw you and I came to you like the breeze. And light and wind were united. He doesn't use that kind of language. You notice? It's very bodily language. Song of Psalms is another one. That's key. That's key. You know what you're doing spiritually by what you're doing physically. Okay? You worship or do not worship God with your body. Alright? With your body. The body plays a crucial, a huge role in our worship of God and who we are. So, the reason why a marriage does not occur unless the physical act happens is precisely because through the physical act will the two become one. I mean that the love they have for each other, the love they have for each other, the deep-seated commitment for each other, the spiritual love they have for each other grows through intercourse. Did you understand what I'm saying to you? That's one of the key essential elements of sexuality. Sex is the prayer of the body. That's what it is. Sexuality is the prayer, is the song of songs of the body. It's a hymn of glory given to God. That's what it's supposed to be. 
that's how God designed it to be. And through the bodily intercourse, the souls grow together. That's its purpose. It isn't just for procreation, as people reduce the vision of the church about sexuality, oh, just for procreation to have kids. No. No, no, no. You see, children are the fruit of the union. They are the fruit of that union. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say the fruit? I do not simply mean that by the physical act, a child is conceived and that's it. I mean that to the point that that child will grow, will grow in love of God and in a holy, in a holy and wholesome family, to, as the child grows in that, in that situation, it is also because the man and the woman have a harmonious and wholesome intercourse. That's why. Okay? So, we can't just reduce it to gymnastics, as the world would want us to do. Right? Nor can we reduce it to, oh, well, you know, it's just, a, uh, it's just an algorithm to have kids. We have allowed the world to color our view of sexuality. The church has no problem with sexuality. The church celebrates sexuality. The church looks at sexuality as, something as, as, as a very precious, pre precious gift that God gave us, through which a man and a woman grow together, are united by the bond of love that God gives them. And the church looks upon this gift as wholesome, as holy, as pleasurable, as necessary, and as the mark of the covenant that allow two to become one. And it is, of course, a symbol, a weak symbol of the union between Christ and His church. What kind of union is that? Is it also spiritual? Does Christ tell us, you, when I look at you, you look like a beautiful ray of light sitting on a cloud. Is that what he's telling us? What does he say to us? I will be united to you. How? Bodily. How? We eat him. We feast on his flesh. See, that's why the, the, the Puritans have a, you know, a fundamental problem with this notion. Yeah, we, the, the, you know, the body. Right? The Greeks also had the same issue. Nothing good can come from the body. Right? We feast on his flesh. It's bodily. The covenant is expressed through our body. Can you receive the Lord telepathically? Can you stand over there and say, okay, Lord, go ahead, beam it. I'm ready. He could have done that. If he wanted to, yeah, but... Right? What about covenant about... Precisely. It's his choice, right? You have to eat and drink. Yes, you can't just stand there. Beam me, Scotty, I'm ready. Nothing will happen, will it? You understand? His body is very important. Don't spiritualize Jesus. That's why we have to have crosses with crucifix. A crucifix, on, not a cross. Not an empty cross. An empty cross is only the spirit. It's a cross with the body of our Lord on the cross. That's why the church insists that we have crucifix, not crosses. Exactly. He's not the son of Ishmael. The point is that Abraham had only one son. When God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, Abraham had two. He had Isaac and Ishmael. Right? But God said, take your son, your only son. Why? Because Isaac is the only son of the covenant. Ishmael was not. Okay? And again, in the case of the Jews back then, there was a disregard to the covenant and to the body because it was acceptable in their case, as it was acceptable in many other situations, if a woman was not able to give a, a, a child to her husband, you know, mind you, we know today it could be actually the guy's problem, not her's problem, but let's not go into this, right? If, 
for whatever reason, right, the baby would not, she wasn't able to bear baby, she would take her maid in her, in her stead. What is that? That's also very much um, platonic. It's very um, disjointed from the body. It says the body is the tool. So she's the tool for me. Right? You see that? No, it was, but it was allowed. I mean, this is how Abraham had his first son. Right? And this is how Jacob had... It wasn't a Jewish law. God didn't allow, but he, he, he permitted because of weakness. You notice that Christianity is the only religion that requires marriage between one man and one woman monogamy. Only Christianity does. No other religion does. Okay? Why? Because of the body. The body is not a toy, it's not replaceable, it's not body parts. The dignity of the human being resides in his body. And then we will treat the body. So here we have a description how God basically closed Jerusalem in, in marriage. And then it says here, you grew exceedingly beautiful and came to regal estate, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor which I had bestowed upon you, says the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty. You trusted in your beauty. Sin can be summarized to this one verse. Trust in a good other than the Lord. Beauty, wealth, intelligence, take anything. As soon as we trust in that thing, we're on our way to sin. We're on our way to perdition. Alright? Here's a good example, because this doesn't come across very often. During the period of Easter, we're not to fast. Okay? The Lord is risen, we don't fast. You can fast after Easter. Alright? When I say this to some people, they get upset with me. But I, I fast, I have to fast. During the period of Easter, you, you don't fast. Right? Pardon? The season of Easter. We are in the season of Easter right now, okay? So you don't fast. Well, I'll let you find that out. Find out how long is the season of Easter. You're not supposed to... No, in the Maronite Rite, it's longer than eight days. We have a longer period of Easter. You don't fast. So some people... Bear with me. So some people get upset. But I need to fast. I have to fast. What are they trusting in? Fasting. Fasting is their beauty. But I'm telling you, the church is asking you not to fast. But I have to fast. Right. Sundays, right? You don't fast on Sundays. Well, you fast before Mass, obviously, but you don't fast. Oh, but I have to fast. Why? Because fast has become my riches, my beauty, my what I own, what I trust in. So it doesn't have to be just material things. It can be spiritual things. Right? It's, we are very easily attached to stuff. Right? Easily attached to stuff. It'd be like the man who says to his wife, Honey, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to spend one hour in prayer. And he's sitting in prayer. And let's say it's at night time. And his wife had a long day and she's tired. And she's in her bed sleeping. She has to get up early. And while he's praying, he hears his daughter crying. And she needs a diaper change. So he says, Honey, could you go change her please? I'm praying. Anybody see the, prop, see the problem here? Okay. See the problem? He's attached to his prayer. I mean, prayer is the noblest thing you can do, but it's his riches. You see how easy it is for us to get wrapped around the axle on something that's really important for us, and we're going to hold to it no matter what? Why? Because we are evil. Our heart is hardened. It's like a block of rock. That's why. It's in our fallen nature to do that. It only takes the burning charity of Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit on us to make us see what we don't see and hear the child crying when we're praying. Okay? And that's why we have to reflect on those passages. And that's why it's important not to run away from those passages where the Lord is very, very hard without pity. Because through it, He's teaching us His mercy. It is that kind of language that's very harsh that can penetrate to our heart and break it open 
make us see His mercy. And get us out of ourselves. If those words of mine don't make sense right now and they're too abstract, chances are that um, God has not yet led you to this place where you feel like a worm. And when He does, because He has to, with each one of us, those passages of scripture that you're seeing right now will come back to mind and will and the moral reading will take its full value so you become Jerusalem you see iniquity in yourself you see how the judgment of God is just upon you and you see how you accept it and you see how you rejoice in it in his judgment let alone his mercy I mean the moral dimension which I seldom touch because I really don't have time is very rich and my focus has always been on the literal sense because this is the one that we sorely miss alright now in that chapter 16 which I don't have time to cover tonight I'm not going to do that but I would recommend you read it one important thing is that the, what happened that Jerusalem trusted in her beauty as I read right now and then she becomes a harlot now harlotry you all know what that word means by the way I don't have to explain it do I? Thank you. Harlotry is often, often associated or used synonymously in scripture with idolatry. Alright? Idolatry is essentially religious harlotry. Why? What is harlotry? It's a breakup of the covenant. It's treating the body as an object and changing the covenant into a contract you come, you see me, you pay this much this happens, you don't pay, this doesn't happen that's a contract in a covenant, in marriage when a man and a woman get together the husband doesn't tell his wife alright honey 50 bucks goes in our 401k tonight come on, hand it to me he doesn't do that, does he? They don't have a, a little pink piggy sitting there and they put money in it every time they celebrate their marriage, do they? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? They don't do that because it's not a contract. They took an oath before God that it is what? Through good times and in bad. It's irrevocable. It cannot be broken. The contract is not like that. The terms of the contract are not, are not satisfied. Payment is not made. That's what harmony does to the body. You understand? Contract is essentially an exchange of objects. Covenant is an exchange of people. I give you myself, you give yourself to me before God. That's why the two are related. Idolatry is what? Idolatry is effectively idolatry is one of two things either it is adoring a false god money sex, power fasting, prayer whatever you glorify and you adore, whatever you put on your pedestal and is your secret personal god that is one form of idolatry the other form of idolatry is adoring the true god the wrong way, without knowing him. Alright? This is what, what our Lord tells the Samaritan woman. The, Samarit the Samaritans adored the same God as the Jews. They did. It was the same God. But Jesus told her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Notice the word he used, know, to know, where is that word used in scripture? Adam knew Eve. You see the word? Same word. Covenantal words. Alright? That's idolatry. Adoring God the wrong way. The two are connected. Because if effectively, someone who falls into idolatry is someone who is actually taking God and creating contract with him. 
All right, you give me a Lamborghini, I'll come to church. No Lamborghini, no church. Sorry, God. You understand? So the language, marital language is often used to describe covenantal relationship. And likewise, idolatry, is, um, uh, harlotry is often used to describe uh, uh, idolatry. So you can see that that is important for us because in the book of Revelation, there is one very famous passage which is in chapter 16 or 17. Well, in, in any event, in, in 17, we read, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, who is seated upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have come, become drunk. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet... Yeah, that's, that's the 17 sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and bedecked with gold and jewel and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of fornication and on her forehead was written the name of mystery Babylon the Great mother of harlots and of earth's abominations and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Who's that woman? Nine out of ten explanations out there will tell you this woman is Rome. Will tell you, no, Rome, specifically the city of Rome. And nine out of ten interpretations of the book of Revelation are explicitly ignoring the covenant. You can't have a harlot unless you have a covenant. In scriptural terms, Jerusalem is the harlot. When you see it covenantally, you immediately see that he's talking about Jerusalem. Particularly, she's holding a cup. Right? And cups play a very important role in the liturgy. And our Lord drank a cup. When he prayed in the book, in, in, uh, in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. Father, Abba Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass by me, but not your will, but, my, but not my will, but your will. Okay? Yes, Hosea had to marry a harlot, absolutely. Um, and Jerusalem, more than any other city, is called the harlot in the Old Testament. Why? Because God is, in, is interested in the covenant. You understand? Once you put the covenant in its proper perspective, then you see, obviously, we're not talking about Rome, Jerusalem. Right. And which city was drunk with the blood of the prophets? Certainly not Rome. Right. Jesus said, what did he say about Jerusalem? You have to go to Jerusalem because... It is fitting for a prophet to die in Jerusalem. Every prophet sent to Jerusalem died in Jerusalem. Okay? So that's one very good example on how ignoring the covenant, ignoring Ezekiel, ignoring the Old Testament, lead folks to interpret it in modern secular terms where they substitute Jerusalem for Rome. Right? But Babylon was not called a harlot as much as Jerusalem was called a harlot. Jericho was not called a harlot. Jerusalem was. Alright. In chapter 17, we've covered that last time. I'll just mention it in passing. We have uh, the parable of the two eagles. And in chapter 8 of... Um, of the book of Revelation, we have an eagle flying with a triple woes. And the two eagles are Babylon and Egypt. So, the appearance of an eagle flying is a portent of war. War is coming. Right? Keep that in mind when we hit the book of Revelation. Because that we understand why an eagle is flying. Because most people, not most people, but some people are tempted to look at the eagle. The only association that Catholics have with an eagle is what? Usually. Yeah, but, but there's an, in, in a more... Um, what is the, 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 the thing that comes to mind when we say eagle? Indigenous species, yes. Uh, St. John. St. John. The eagle is St. John. Alright? So, when they see an eagle flying by, crying three times, whoa, 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 they see you know, St. John somehow flying by. I mean, just, you know, wrong association. Okay, it doesn't work. Because he is a mystic in his writing of the gospel. He's, he flies so high. 
spiritually that he's given the image of the eagle. Uh, plus there's other reasons. Um, in the book of Revelation, the woman was given the wings of the two eagles. And St. John was the one who took Our Lady in, etc., etc. But um, again, another example how you just can bring about a random association and try to explain the book of Revelation, and, and you, you, get, you get in trouble. We have to be very careful. In chapter 20, we've seen that last time, I'm going to repeat it right now, a sword has been sharpened and drawn against Jerusalem. 20, verse 1 through 43, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll, I'll um, verse 1 through 43... Okay, then I thought I would put out my wrath upon them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them. And then, in verse 27, verse 33, As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outreached arm, and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. And I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. Uh, I couldn't find the passage where there, there is, a, is, is a sword. I should have marked it better. But essentially in this pa passage, in this chapter, there is a passage where God says that a sword has been, uh, the sword is drawn against Jerusalem and the sword is burnished. Which is what we see in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, where the Lord appeared with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Yeah, and, and I was going through Ezekiel 20, and it looks like I must have made a mistake, because I can find it right now. But be it as it may, again, the image of the sword that we see in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, you know, we wonder, why is he appearing as a sword? And the first thing that comes to mind, most people, is the sword of Eden. This is the one thing they remember, right? But it's the sword of judgment coming from his mouth, a sword is drawn. Yes, sorry, so you see I made a mistake, it's 21, not 20, so I can find it. So, in 21, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man prophesied, and says, thus says the Lord, a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash the lightning. So this notion of a sword ready to go comes also in the book of Revelation. That's what's going to help us put the context, in its, put that text in its context. And then in chapter 38, verse 1 through chapter 39, 29, there's a prophecy against Gog, the king of Magog. We're not completely sure who that guy is, but it's a prophecy against him, and effectively, in that prophecy, he is represented as a very evil guy. In St. John, Gog and Magog are combined, and we have the second battle after the battle of Armageddon, which is the battle of Gog and Magog. And again, it's drawn directly from Ezekiel. Alright? Gog and Magog. You can find that in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 7 through 10. And then finally, in chapter 40, we'll go through some of that next week, as we close on the book of uh, Ezekiel, and forward you have the new Jerusalem. Especially the new temple, described by Ezekiel. That was, this temple, as Ezekiel sees it, spiritually, was the second temple that was going to be built under Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay? And that second temple was far less glorious physically to the temple that Solomon built, or to the temple that was built when Jesus came. Right? Herod's temple. Far less glorious. It was a lot simpler. Yet, in the book of Ezekiel, you will see it is described in glorious terms. Right? So if you have friends who will say, well, you know, um, especially, you know, some Protestant uh, friends who are uh, kind of health and wealth gospel, if God loves you, then he will bless you with good health and with lots of wealth. And they take that and say, well, look at you know, Latin America. They're all Catholics and they're all poor. How could they say that God is with them? Well, the second temple was very simple. It was poor compared to the first or the third. And yet, in God's eyes, far more glorious than either. Why? Because it was built by people who had faith. That's why. All right? So what we will do next week is that we will go over the chapter 40 through 48 quickly and then go back and hit on certain 
interesting passages in Ezekiel, and we'll close that chapter, that book. Clearly, three lectures on Ezekiel just doesn't do it any justice. But I hope that it gives you at least an inkling, an idea, that all these books that we've covered are foundational for our understanding to the book of Revelation. And that without them, had we gone headlong into the book of Revelation directly, we would be hard-pressed to make sense of all those passages. Alright? So, I know you have questions. What I would like to do now is close with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.